and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. And for good measure, he is risen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm a little sweaty from going from baptism to change and back. So if you see drips of sweat roll off my bald head, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm not having a heart attack or anything, okay? All right. So we'll do the best we can to get through this, yes? I do have a question that I want to begin our thoughts this morning from God's Word. On. And I think it's a question that all of us can relate to. Do you feel like, like I do, that life sometimes often feels like it's just one big old smack in the face. Am I alone in that? I hope I'm not alone in that. Like it just feels like you can have those days and you're like, oh man, today's going to be a good day. And then all of a sudden it's like, whack, right? Just right across the face. And in one sense, that's not, that's not unusual for us. It's not something that's unexpected for us. Like we, we get this, you and I as believers, we understand the right way, understand the world rightly and the development of human history correctly. And we understand that it all goes back to that faithful day in the garden. And, and so all of us understand this on, on that like Sunday school level, right? We understand that life has been consumed by the curse of sin. We understand that it's relentlessly reminds us how much life is not how it should be. We all, we all get that from a theological, biblical perspective, Yes. But I mean, what I want to do when I ask that question is just maybe invite you into the place that I feel at times, even feel, felt here recently, that even though we know that and we can give you the Sunday school answer about how life is, but do you feel it? Do you recognize it? Do you, do you, do you see those particular seasons that you've been put into by the Lord's providence where you have been just faced with difficulties from various angles and uh, you just sense inside your heart that life just feels very wearisome and you need the power of the resurrection reminded to you yet again. I know that's where I have been. I believe in the last three years, we looked at the last three years here recently in my own life, the Lord has reminded me how much more I need to be reminded of his power and his resurrection over this life that is in squalor, that's in sin And so this past week, as I was reading through my own personal study, I ran across a story that I hope will bring some encouragement to us and maybe even launch us into our thoughts from first, from, I'm sorry, from Philippians chapter three. In 1799, the armies of Napoleon had been marching through, marching west and were at the heights above a town 
called um, Feldkirch, Austria, and it was Easter Day. And on Easter Day, the rays of the sun were rising and glittering, but they were gleaming off the weaponry of the army lying above them on this hill above. And so as they're watching this army draw closer and get closer, the town council decides to come together. And, of course, they're in a panic. They're in fear. What are we going to do? <coughs> Excuse me. What are we going to do in this moment? And so they took consult with one another. And after much discussion, the dean of the church, back if you're an Anglican, that's, they have these different kinds of uh, people who work in a church, but the dean of the church came to them and said, Brothers, it is Easter Sunday. We have been reckoning in our own strength. And that fails. Let us turn to God this morning. Ring the bells. Ring the bells and have service as usual and leave the matter to God. Amen. And so, in consult, the council said, he's right. We have nothing, no one but God to help us in this moment. So then the church towers rang from this little Austrian town, and the joyous sounds rang through the city, and all the people came out of their homes, and they decided to head to church. And they had a glorious day worshiping their Savior, Jesus. But the irony of that moment is, the French heard the ringing of the bells, and they heard something very different. They heard their imminent destruction ringing from those bells. They had thought by the ringing of those bells that meant that the Austrian army had, was, was, was near, and therefore it caused them to rethink their plans, and they all fled as the bells were ringing that morning. I admit to you this morning, and many of you know this for sure, that I can identify with those town leaders. I can identify with them more often than I want to admit about how fearful and disillusioned the threats and discouragements that loom over every, over every ridge in life for us. And I can, I can reckon that with even my own recent experience, the, the fretting with my dad for the last six months. Most of you know, many of you know about that. And, of course, his recent passing last week, the losing of a close friend in ministry, about a month and a half, about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And of course, then what's happened in our own city in the past week and a half, two weeks. And it just, I, I understand why they responded to Napoleon's army fearfully. I think you do too. You look at the real square realities of life and it's hard to deny that those things are real and it's hard to deny like feeling fearful and feeling, feeling disillusioned and, and just turned upside down and feeling a little bit dizzy. But just like this townspeople who decided to turn their hearts to Christ on that regular day of worship there on that Easter Day Sunday, and they rang the bells, friends, we can be assured this morning that the bells of Christ's resurrection ring out into all creation, and it puts the fear of God into death, sin, and the grave. So as I was trying to reemerge out of all the things that have happened over the last couple of weeks, I found myself on a plane flying back here from Virginia last weekend, just trying to think about how does the Lord want me to lead out for this becoming Sunday. And for whatever reason, I felt a particular drawing to verses 10 and 11 here in Philippians chapter 3. Let me just read them again to you. I just want to ask, what makes a man confess these things? What made Paul confess these things? Here's his confession, that I may know him. Who's him? Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, 
I may attain a resurrection from the dead. So my aim this morning in getting this set up to this point is simply this, to ask a question. What can you and I learn this morning from Paul's confession in verses 10 and 11? His aim, his ambition to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What does that have to do with you and me today as we face the grim realities of the world in which we live? Are, are we living in a different time? Does, do, the, do the things of this age have a particular more dangerous reality than the things that Paul faced? The answer is, of course, no. But we can make it feel like that sometimes, don't we? And so that's what I want to answer. What can we learn from Paul's pursuit of the resurrection life? And here's the answer, the short answer, and then we're going to build it out as we look back at verse 2 up to chapter, I'm sorry, up to verse 11. Confidence in the flesh, friends, confidence in the flesh can only leave us disillusioned, numb, and fearful. That's all the flesh has to offer you and I. It reminds us of how, how, how small we are, how incapable we are. Every time we try to put our confidence in ourselves and in our living, we come up short every time. Therefore, for the Christian, for those of us in this room who confess Christ, which is the vast majority of us that I know of, this morning confess Christ, we must continually seek in the most difficult times of life, we must continually seek to know Christ above all things. Like That's the only thing. To know Christ and to attain in order to attain resurrection and know the power of the resurrection. Because the power of the resurrection is not just for then, it's also for now. Right in the middle of life's peculiar difficulties. So I have three things that I want to look at from this text this morning that will help us. Well, really two things, and then we'll come right back to this verse, verse 10 and 11 to kind of finish this out. The two things this morning that I want to just talk about, one is... That Paul, where does, where, does, where does Paul's passion for knowing Christ and his dependence and desire to know the resurrection power in his life, where, where does it come from? Well, number one, it arises from his awareness of the suffocating delusion of life yoked to the flesh. Let me say that again. It arises from Paul's own assessment, own experience of the fact that he was aware that, that his dependence, his life being yoked to his own flesh, was, was nothing more than a suffocating delusion. When we live so much resting and depending on ourselves, we find that it ultimately it will leave us empty. So let's look at verse 2 again. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. Paul warns of this delusion here in these first couple of verses. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul has in mind here in this text both the non-Christian living outside of Christ and perhaps even those who would confess Christ. i got Galatians, the Galatian church in mind here. They would confess Christ, but they do so championing the law of Moses and insisting on things like circumcision as means of salvation for them. So they still say they would believe in Christ, but they still leaned so much on their, themselves, whether it was these particular religious activities or, or, or circumcision and all these different things. And so by calling them dogs, that sounds extremely offensive, yeah? But what he's doing is he's invoking a very common phraseology that, the, that an Orthodox Jew would call someone who was a, a, a Gentile. 
They would call them dogs because dogs were considered unclean. They were commonly, they were considered an unclean animal and therefore the Gentile for the Jew was nothing more than a dog. But then he also uses this word mutilate here. In a Greek, it was actually closely related to circumcision. So it was common practice in the Greco-Roman pagan worship to practice doing things fleshly harm to themselves as an act of devotion to whatever god they were worshiping. And so then, again, another reason why the Jews would call them pagans and call them dogs is because they're worshiping their god and they had to, they had to harm themselves by worshiping their gods. So what Paul is doing here is he's referring to these Christian or non-Christian um, enemies of the gospel, and he's saying, look out for them. Look out for those who are evildoers. And if you pair it to verse 3, for we are the circumcision. So he's saying, these who mutilate the flesh, he's talking to Jews, mostly, Jews who are denying Christ and who he is and what he's come to do. And he's saying these people are nothing more than mutilators of the flesh. No, actually, we're the real circumcision in the world. So what he's referring to them is, is as those who mutilate the flesh. And what he's doing is he's associating the Jews who still do circumcision or those Christians who still insist on circumcision. He's saying to them, you are still, you're living like the pagans. You're living like the dogs you say you don't agree with. You're living just like them. Because what you are doing is, is you are resting in your own external means as your confidence for your faith and for your standing before God. You're not resting in that, what he says, the true circumcision there in verse 3. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And he makes it very clear and put no confidence in the flesh. So the kind of circumcision he's talking about here is not something that's external, but it's an internal circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying to these Judaizers, these legalists, that they're they, they not being true to the law of God, even though they're saying that they're being true to the law of God in any way, and they're actually nothing more than being lumped in with every other pagan religion in the world. That's what they are. And Paul is confronting the wrong use of these covenant signs like circumcision in the church, and, he, and they use them to... Uh, to demarcate some kind of a uh, of, of false narrative about what God has done in his promises, his covenantal promises, his covenant of grace. He's clarifying that they are using the law poorly, specifically the Mosaic law. Now, why is that important? Because at the end of the day, they're putting their confidence in the flesh and that confidence in the glory of Christ and the spirit of God to apply the glory of Christ to their lives. See, the true Christian, the true circumcised, are those who've been circumcised through the power of the Spirit and are now able to see and glory in the person and work of Jesus. And then he goes on in verses 4, really 4 through 9, but we're going to only go through 4 through uh, 6 here for a moment. And he just says, look, I was where you are. He gives his own personal testimony about how he would put confidence in his own flesh. Let's just read it. He says, though I have myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks else thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of Hebrews, of the, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. What is he saying there? Paul's giving examples of how he used to do the very same things that he's calling them out for. And so he's telling this Philippian church, beware of those who want to accommodate the gospel back into fleshly endeavors. 
put the gospel back into our confidence in what we do for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for us. That's what the gospel is. And so Paul points out several confidences he had. His religious confidence. He was circumcised on the eighth day. I mean, you don't get any better than that. Well, that's right on it. His ethnic confidence. He was of the people of Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, a, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. His moral and his righteous confidence in himself. That's the law, man. I was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the top dogs when it comes to keeping the law. At least that's what they thought. And so they took the law, as you guys know, and you see how Jesus interacted with them in the Gospels. He took, they took the law and they, and they twisted the law into all of these little things that they would do in order to keep the law. And so they were the ones who were the ones who would always look down and put their finger in everyone's chest and say, see, look at me, you're not like me. Just like the prayer says, thank you, God, I'm not like this sinner. That's the Pharisees. This is who Paul was. He was the top, the most, most passionate, most zealous of people. His prideful confidence he was so committed to all of his religious zeal, his moral zeal, and his ethnic zeal that he was a great persecutor of the church, as we all know in Acts, right? Now, what does this hold out for you and me this morning? And, and perhaps what does this hold out as we think about applying this into the world we live in? Well, for those of us in here that are Christians, I think this points us to the fact that it's very, 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 very easy for us to usurp our confidence in Christ with all kinds of other things. If we do anything, if you want to make a big deal about Easter, fine. If you don't want to make a big Easter, big deal about Easter, that's fine. But if we're going to do something with it, we're going to focus in on the resurrection. We're going to think about what the resurrection holds out to us and how it causes us and leads us to repent of all these accommodated gospels, these accommodated good news. Like, for instance, prosperity gospel Right? We know the prosperity gospel. But the prosperity gospel is not just the guys who are on TV who fly jets across everywhere. Like, that's fine. But, but that, that kind of prosperity gospel that gets our confidence in what? Like our earthly standing, our earthly material wealth, our stability, our comfort. None of those things are inherently bad. But when we measure God's faithfulness to us based on those things, we have now begun to turn our way, eyes away from Jesus and into earthly things. Or Paul's moralistic, legalistic gospel. I mean, isn't that alive and well today? Isn't that alive and well in all the churches around us who, who put our confidence in keeping God's law or keeping rules or doing good works? Now, to be clear, do not mishear me here. The Christian is called to pursue righteousness. The Christian is called to pursue holiness. The, 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 the Christian is called to love God's law. Unfortunately, many Christians have forgotten that today. But there's a kind of moralistic gospel that's not like that. It still seeks to bear out God's favor based on how we live. It seems to, seems to want to boister our standing before God with legalistic additions. So, you know, I, you know, they'll just add little things. So like I've said about the Pharisees, when they would say, you know, they would use uh, Deuteronomy 6, 9, right? And they would say, um, you know, you, they, they teach their kids and teach their children to keep all these things. And they say, put them on your frontlets, is one of the passages that says. Frontlets, they'd actually tell you, put a little phylactery box up here and you would like put a little written word on it. And, like, it's that kind of keeping the law that we go beyond what God's word says in order to show that we are particularly faithful to Jesus. 
So we may not be necessarily trusting in our works, but we are definitely trying to project to others that we are worthy of God's love. That's what the Pharisees were all about. Like, we're worthy of God's love because we're doing it. We're doing this seriously. Or experiential gospel. Isn't that one? Where we just, churches are just trying to, now listen, especially on Easter Sunday. Um, there's a little video that was going around, you know, about the different pastors talking about what they're going to do for Easter. And uh, Kevin Foskey is what his name is. He does a great job with this. And he talks about how Pentecostals do it, how non-denominated big churches do it, and how, you know, different denominations do it. I won't go into it. You can look it up for yourself. But the reality is it's amazing how we will make something an experience. And if we don't have the right experience, somehow or another we've not been faithful to Jesus. Now, it's us in the Reformed community, like, okay, there can be value in Easter Sunday for the particular reason of bringing highlight in the resurrection, amen. But we don't sit, like, we, if you noticed, like, someone asked me, so what are you guys doing for, for Easter Sunday? Uh, we're buying a lot of bagels. That's our Easter Sunday. We're buying a lot of bagels because we're going to have an enjoy a breakfast together, and then we're going to worship and sing to King Jesus this morning. But the experiential gospel puts our confidence in how we feel about what we participate in. You put your confidence in how you feel about what you experienced here this morning when you walk away. Dim the lights, put on the smoke show, whatever. Experiential gospel or just, yeah, how, how did I feel anointed? Or how was the pastor? Did he feel anointed this morning? Like all these things that we will use. And then there's therapeutic gospel. Now, I want to make sure I say something here. I, I'm a counselor, and I love counseling, and I've benefited from counseling, so this is not an assault on counseling in any way, shape, or form. You hear me say that. But there is a kind of therapeutic experience of the gospel that where we put our confidence in how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about our own validation before God. And so, therefore, there's a rewriting of Scripture. There's a rewriting of theology oftentimes. It ends up rewriting the gospel through those lenses. And that therapeutic gospel is also a false gospel. Lastly, culture warrior gospel is a false gospel because it begins to put our hope and trust in how we change the culture out there, whichever way you want to frame it. That's also a false gospel because it draws us away from the kingdom which we live now in light of who Christ is and we wait upon his return. And yes, we are to live faithfully in the world we live in. We are to go out into the world and, and seek to make Jesus known wherever we go and to make the, the, make the truths and the, and the realities of what the Scripture says about what real life is and what it means to be really human. Yes, and amen to all of that. But we are not Christ's warriors. We're his brothers and sisters whom he has come to redeem. And otherwise, we would never have salvation. I just want us to hear that. Much of American religion, much of American even evangelicalism sometimes can be immersed in these very things I just mentioned, a moralistic, therapeutic deism. That, 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 that all religion is is that, one, how good I feel about myself and how I've lived today, or two, therapeutic, how much I've been validated today, or three, deism, how much God is interested in me for this moment, but God kind of stands far off and aloof from me. That's a false religion. And any means in which that's accommodated in the church must be rejected. And so this is that. In fact, that is the religion of the world. Don't, don't think for a second that your non-Christian friends out there are not religious. They're very religious. 
Be aware that our world deeply is religious in this moralistic therapeutic framework where they believe that moralism is basically how we do good for other people, which is fine. We should do good to other people, but then also affirm and validate them in who they are or who they say they are. And the therapeutic gospel, the therapeutic religion, where one finds and feels home in their own bodies and their own souls. Those are not religions, friend. Those are not faithful Christian faith. That's not faithful Christianity. And we have something to say to those things. See, all that is rooted back into what we've been talking about here in Paul, relinquishing control of our flesh, relinquishing dependence and confidence in our flesh. That's what the whole world does. It's a profound illusion where we discover that our life's deepest meanings are within ourselves. And friends, they're not within ourselves. Your deepest longing is not found within you. Life's true purpose is confidence, is not confidence in ourselves, but is confidence in something outside of ourselves, someone outside of ourselves, Jesus. So the true source of confidence then, going back to verse 3, is this. We are the circumcision. Those who have been worshipped by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And, and Paul is using his own story, and he's warning them about all these people who are still putting confidence in the flesh. And he has this little centerpiece here, and he, said, he just goes back to them and says, Look, the Christian's confidence, Philippian church, the Christian's confidence, Grace Church, it lies beyond yourself. It lies beyond you. True confidence arises from the work of the Spirit of God who regenerates your dead heart. You can't do it. You can't make yourself alive. Only Jesus can do that through the work of the Spirit. He circumcises your heart. And when your hearts are circumcised, guess what you get to see? You get to see the glory of Jesus. You can't see the glory of Jesus until the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart. And so then now Paul then talks about the rest of his testimony from here on out to, to talk about why this, this circumcision of the heart so much better than mutilating themselves with their flesh and putting confidence in their flesh. Why? Because it's grounded in Paul's newfound satisfaction in knowing Christ. Pick up in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So verses 4 all the way through 9 are like this little parenthesis inside this whole section of Paul giving his own testimony of how he himself has relinquished his confidence from the flesh and he's put all of his confidence in Christ. And so what he does here in this, in this little section, verses 7 through 9, is he's framing his new confidence against his old confidence in the, in the, in the paradigm of loss and gain. He, he, he's come to the conclusion that to be a Christian, one must assess life this way. You must assess your life this way as a believer to know that just because you lose something doesn't mean that you don't gain something profoundly more valuable. And this is the hardest part for us, right? Because we still do that little, we do the math. If I go this direction, well, that means I lose this, whatever this is. And, 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 then, and so is Jesus enough? Is Jesus really better than this? And so Paul is framing this whole thing inside of this loss gain paradigm. And we must come to the reality that life in the flesh and, and life in Christ, friends, is they're not compatible. Now, listen, you're not hearing me say that life 
is not meaningful out here because this life is still designed by God. I'm talking about life where we depend on our flesh, depend on ourselves to make life meaningful versus depending on the God who created everything you and I know and living in confidence in him. That's what Paul is saying. So many times I, and maybe you are too, are tempted to try to force fit some fleshly ideas about life, things I'm still holding on to, with, into, and I try to force fit them into my newfound identity in Christ. And here's what only happens. It only frustrates me, right? Doesn't it frustrate you when you try to force fit the old life, the old man inside the new man? And it strains our souls and frustrates our souls. And so he says here in this passage that his old confidence in himself is nothing more than rubbish. Now, if you want to be a middle schooler here for a moment, it's dung. Or, never mind, I won't go there. A big old pile of, you fill in the blank. Paul makes it clear, does he not, that the old life has nothing to offer. The old life, again, defined by the fact that we're putting our confidence in ourselves. To say the old life, we are not saying that the uh, goodness of God's creational design lived with renewed purpose after our salvation. We're not talking about that. That is a good thing, and you and I should live life to its fullest in light of what Christ has done, because it's in Christ that is redeemed. But But we are not like the old Gnostics, who believe the material world was intrinsically evil. So we're not saying that. We are talking about the kind of old life that seeks to press in on itself and ultimately collapse in on itself because we place our confidence, and I've said that word a thousand times already, in it apart from God who designed it. See, everything you and I know about how to live life apart from God and apart from how it is built on the fact that you and I know better than God. It goes right back to the lies that were whispered into our ears, our our grandparents' ears back in the garden. Does God truly love you? Will God truly, will will you surely die? And the answer to that for them ultimately was, no, we won't. We know better than God. And that has been the lie that has been been circulating through the human genome ever since. Every last one of us. No, his confidence then as someone who, can you imagine, someone who's trained the way he was trained, raised the way he was raised. Paul's confidence has changed. Christ is his only gain, he says. Look at verse 9. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, sorry, and be found in him having not, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. Gains righteousness for Paul was gaining Christ. In fact, he gained Christ's righteousness. We call this alien righteousness. Something outside of us that's put into us, apart from us, and then removes the old righteousness, the unrighteousness in us, and pulls it out of us. We need an alien righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. And his new confidence is, I don't have enough in me as a Hebrew, as a born of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, as a one who keeps the law, as a Pharisee as a great zealous person who persecuted church, none of that even pales in comparison to the righteousness that I have gained in Christ. I was sitting with our Joel here in his 
last interview this past week, and I was just struck by how that simple reality started was permeating his testimony as I get to sit and talk with him about this. That he was turning from his confidence in his own standing, his own righteousness. And he was learning to cast his, his cares upon Christ who was and is his righteous standing. Christian, let me just say this to you clearly. This message never gets old. It should be the everything to us. And the only thing to us. And so that returns us back to verse 10 and 11. And it kind of helps us see Paul's words a little bit more clearly, do they not? So let's just read them again. I've counted everything as lost to gain Christ, who's my righteousness, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. If you're reading the ESV, which is what I'm preaching from this morning, You've noticed, as I mentioned a second ago, that between verses 4 and 9, there's this parenthesis. And so really what you have is verses 2 and 3, and the statement picks back up in verse 10. And so if you were to read it that way, let's read it that way. You'll see the kind of the logical framework of Paul in this, if you can read it this way. So verses 2 and 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh, verse 10, that I may know him. To put no confidence in the flesh... To live in the, by the Spirit of God who has circumcised us now casts us into a whole new endeavor with life. But I mean, know Him and the power of His resurrection. And may share in His sufferings and becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may achieve resurrection from the dead. Paul then here, if you put that together and you take his little testimony out of the middle as he's explaining this to them, what you're seeing is, in effect, he's saying that his pursuit in life is an increasing abandonment of the disillusionments of this life because he is now living within the new spiritual circumcision of the heart, wrought by the Spirit of God, rooted in the glory of Christ and in his resurrection. You can't divorce the resurrection from your everyday Christian life. It's just not possible. It's not, the way we, it's not the way it's been designed. And so with that said, there are in this, this last verse, I have three. I have three um, points, three truths that I think will be very helpful for us as we walk out. I'm going to try to do this pretty quickly. Number one, and it comes straight from the text. All of life is now to be devoted to knowing Christ and the power of the resurrection. We see there in verse 10. Seems pretty basic, right? But think about it. Let's press into it for a moment. To know Christ is to know what? His resurrection. You can't know Christ without his resurrection. To all your progressive friends who will get on Facebook this morning saying that they've worshipped Jesus, and they said, but you don't have to believe in a physical resurrection in order to worship Jesus. Let me tell, you can tell them this. And I said, someone, I saw someone say this before. Jesus and Paul would like to differ with you on that. To not have a physical resurrection that actually does put death to death doesn't offer you anything. But when you wrestle with the fact to know Christ is to know him in his resurrection, you now get everything. The, 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 the tense here in the Greek is, that, is, is in the present active tense, meaning that to know him 
is now a reality now, and the power of his resurrection is a reality now. Our resurrection is not just a future reality that you and I will have the privilege of participating in, but it's a resurrection life now, and it's an ongoing reality now. Of course, it'll be much more glorious when Jesus returns, but it is a promise, and it is a reality that you and I can live now. That through the life of the Holy Spirit in you, you can live now um, hating and, just, and, and, and confronting sin in your life, just like all believers have. John Calvin comments on this verse as the reality of the efficacy of Christ's resurrection that is bore out in the life of a believer now as it is being completed when Jesus returns. So what John Calvin thought of this, as I agree with him, is that the resurrection now begins when you put your faith in Christ and is a continuing growing reality until it's the full consummation of your resurrection when Jesus returns. The resurrection life is for us here. So when you're facing difficulties and when you're facing the sadnesses and the griefs of this life, it is imperative upon you, brothers and sisters, to return to the resurrection. Return to the resurrection. That right in the face of death, the very sting of death has lost its sting. Number two. All of life is to find our entire identity in Christ and his suffering. Look what it says there. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now what Paul's not saying here is that, um, the, that, that, that because Christ suffered, that means that the Christian life is a life of suffering. Now, to be clear, suffering is particular to the Christian life and it's something we should not be fearful of and there is suffering in the Christian life and, it, and there will be until Jesus returns. So we're not, we're not saying that, but what Paul has in mind here is what he would say back in Romans chapter 6. Let's just turn there real quick. Romans chapter 6. I'm just going to read several verses together. Picking up there in verse, just verse 1 through 14, and we'll read it to us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died into sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, shall we, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body, might, a body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we, have been, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin and once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll just stop right there. So what he's getting at here in this, last, in this second point of all of our entire identity must be found in the suffering of Christ, he is saying that we are now identifying with his death. It's what we did in baptism. It's what, why that, that, that particular rite is so important for us because it reminds us of who we are now, the new man, the new woman now in Christ. Paul has in mind here that, we would, we would, that he would learn to pursue his entire life 
to know Christ and the power of his resurrection through the lens of his own identification with Christ's death. That he was buried with Christ in baptism and he was raised to walk in newness of life. Grace abounds as we abide in Christ's death and, bury, and, and we bury sin in our lives. Christ, grace abounds in us as we arise with Christ and live in newness of life now. Our full selves cannot be found anywhere else. Friends, in our world today, they're desperate for this message. Maybe you're desperate for this message this morning. I'm not completely at all under the illusion that somehow or another this is not relevant to us in here this morning. Maybe your identity is being assaulted right now. And you need to remind yourself of this very thing here, that you can find nowhere else your full self rather than Christ. Not in your vocation, not in your marriage, not in your family life, not in your cultural endeavors, not in through your therapeutic discoveries, not in your false sense of who you are, whether it be in, in, in relationship to your, to your identity, gender, or sexual identity, whatever it may be, you cannot find yourself there. You can't. And so this is a profoundly loving message to the world who desperately needs this. It's a profoundly powerful message to you as you continue to live in it until Jesus returns. See, Paul has a consuming goal. I ask the question, what can we learn from this? To live our entire day, days, all of our days, to know Christ in his resurrection and to find our entire identity in his resurrection so that in the end, we get to experience a resurrection for real. That whatever vestiges of death and pain still live within us, they'll one day be completely washed and we will be made white as snow and Christ is going to resurrect us home. And we might still live in this world. Of course, that's true now, reality, but the reality is that we still live with the pains of death around us, yes? And when Jesus returns, that's, that's done. Death is no more. See, over the years, I've had the honor, and I'll finish it with this thought, of knowing and pastoring some pretty remarkable people. In some cases, I've had the privilege of watching those faithful believers live out their last days in extremely difficult circumstances. And in doing so, I watched these people, particularly two men I have in mind, keep their eyes intently on Christ until that last breath came. You might even know who I'm thinking about. I'm thinking of Tom Churchill, and I'm thinking of Dale Curtis. Tom, though it was hard to communicate with him, he just loved people sitting by his bed, reading the Bible to him, reading his favorite books. And we had people singing hymns to him outside of his window in his last hours. And it was long. It was, it was two or three months. But it was one of the best treasures I've ever had as a pastor to watch. We had our elders and different men going in, two or three times a week, I think, sitting with him. But he loved Jesus, and he wanted his wife. And one of the, one of the great prayers he had was to have his wife, Miss Betty, in, in a gospel-preaching church, and he made sure that happened before that happened. Dell, well, we all know who Dell was. If you know Dell, he was a fiery old goat, wasn't he? I love him. I'm sorry. I, now, you know this. You know, I, I'm not, I am by no means. I love that man. I loved him because he knew this life was not all there really was. During 2020 and all the commotion that went on through that, like, he didn't care. He wanted people hugging him. He didn't care. 
He didn't, man. If you knew and you're like, okay, Dale, are you sure? Like, no. Because like, to him, it had been an honor. If it's going to be the hug of a believer that sends him over the point, he was like, that's a glorious reality for him. That's, I mean, I mean, him telling me this. It was awesome. And so one day I asked him, I was like, do you ever feel sad? Because we, we used to go to his house and just sit and tell stories. And he's got kids who are mission fields. And we just tell all the things that God's done in his life. And he would just, it was just, a, you could just, I loved hearing his stories. And I asked him one time, um, did you ever feel sad that he thought that maybe the best uh, was, you know, was in the past of his life? And he looked at me and only the way Dell could say that he is here, that's ridiculous. No, sir. My best days are yet to come. His death days when he gets to see King Jesus in that resurrected body. Friends, death and sin and the grave are a reality that we will face until Jesus returns. But we need not fret it because, as our brother Dale said to me, our best days are yet to come. Amen? Let's pray and let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Jesus, thank you for your time, this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Father, as we face death, we face the difficulties of life, we face painful goodbyes of friends, we face the reality of family members and, and, and friends who don't know Christ and re reject what we believe, God. Jesus, would you just still work powerfully in those moments? Would you, would you take the confidence of your people here in this room and, put, and help us to see um, you more clearly, even in the midst of these difficulties now now, Lord? And may that we might, just like Paul, Seek to know you and the power of your resurrection and, and, and be identified with your death every second of every day until you return. It's in Christ's name we pray.